Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by NAMPA and the Wild and Exposed team. Tonight, we have Ron Hayes and Jason Loftus from Wild and Exposed. And we also have Elise Bender, who is joining us as our guest as a NAMPA member. So welcome, Elise, to the show tonight. Thank you so very much. So usually, Elise, um, if you're I'm sure you're familiar with the show. We kind of get started with, um, we'll talk a little bit about what we've all been doing. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen these guys. I don't know why it feels that way, but um, it's, it, I know everybody gets so busy, you know, as they, especially as they kind of wrap summer up and then we start heading into fall, falls. I know for all of us tends to be a very busy time of year. So what has everybody been up to? Ron and Jason, what have you guys been doing lately? Um, I, well, I had a trip planned and I went up and shot some bears, uh, up in Kodiak and Katmai and, um, ended up, I talked about it on a previous podcast, but I ended up getting pretty sick up there with COVID and had to quarantine and ended up not being such a great bear trip. But, um, that's literally what I've been up to for the last three weeks almost. Um, and now just getting ready to, you know, get out and get after it for the elk rut in the fall and, uh, as you mentioned, fall's a very, very busy time for most of us, and it's my favorite time of the year. So, Ron, what about you? What have you been busy doing? Did a trip with my son, and outside of that, I have been trying to learn how to edit video. So that's uh, <laughs> that'll keep you a busy. Whole new skill set. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every time I think I've got a little bit of a handle on it, there's ten or. 30 or 40 other things that I need to learn before I can do what I want it to do. Kind of the same thing here. I was out photographing the Perseids and I've been wanting to learn how to do time-lapse. So I've been doing some time-lapse video from, from those photos and it kind of is going okay, but I'm not finished yet for the same exact reason. I keep kind of figuring out ways to tweak it a little bit more, but I also finally got out to New Jersey to visit family out there. It's been a long time. I hadn't been out there since before the COVID stuff started. So it's been more than two years. So COVID's definitely had a, continues to still have a, an impact on how, how we travel. So hopefully that's going to be over sooner than later, but I know we keep saying that. So no more talk about COVID. Let's, let's get past that. So, so let's get into talking to um, why we've invited Elise onto the show tonight. And um, I know she's always super enthusiastic about everything she's doing and she's a girl after my own heart. She does a lot of um, car camping and traveling, traveling solo, which I always admire. I just, just this week I was camping by myself and somebody had asked me, they're like, you do this by yourself? And I'm like, yeah, why not? It's, I'd rather do it and, and just be as open-minded as possible and keep my wits about me than, than sit at home and say, gosh, I wish I could do that. So, so at least have you been doing any camping this summer? Um, well, actually I have, um, basically once, and I'll just briefly touch on it. I know it's COVID, but um, basically, once I got once I got vaccinated, um, I uh, I was out the door as soon as possible. Um, so this summer started off with two and a half weeks up in Yellowstone Tetons, um, 
And then I got back to explore Texas, where I'm based out of San Antonio, but we only moved here in December. So I've been exploring the state as much as I can. Um, and then I did a two-week trip um, just recently here, end of July into August, to Florida um, for two weeks. So I've been on the road. I've uh, I've put a lot of miles of... I'm racking up a lot of points at Jiffy Lube. I'll say that much. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all doing, we're all catching up on those miles we didn't put on last year. Right, right. Um, yeah, and and mileage does add up just, I mean, going back into spring, I did 12,000 miles in 11 weeks. So, um, yeah. That's a uh, <laughs> frequent customer at Jiffy Lube. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, not having international outs um, has kind of really made me explore um, the country and being in Texas, it's, you have to go a long way to get outside of Texas. So um, it, it's a lot of miles, but it's fun. I love it. Where did you move from? I was half living in Monterey, California, half living in Vegas. So um before that, it was Japan. Before that, it was South Carolina. Before that, it was Guam. So I I travel around quite a bit just in moving. And then on top of that, I have this as a job. So um, I just I just tag it with no roots. There you go. So <laughs> so why don't we talk a little bit about why you do travel so much? Part, you know, um, partly, obviously, for photography, but you have other reasons, too, that you've that's brought you into photography? Yeah. So um, one of the main reasons that I became a full-time nature photographer, other than I just, I have a passion for it. I absolutely love it, um, was because uh, when I got out of the military, my husband stayed in. And so we end up moving every two to three years. Um, due to his career. So I needed something that could travel with us. And um, nature photography just really fits that fits that bill. And it was something that I was already doing part time. Um, and so at one point where he went overseas, where I couldn't actually follow, um, we made the decision to jump off the deep end and allow me to go full time in this career field. Um, I spent 10 months living out of an RV, traveling the Southwest, building my portfolio, making sure I had everything lined up to run a business properly, and um, really just kind of got into it over that 10-month period. And when he got back, I started traveling even more um, professionally. So, Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. We can't just breeze by this. Thank you. Thank you both for your service. Well, thank you all for your support. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, though, getting into that, getting out there and spending, being able to spend that kind of time to build your portfolio, you know, and approach it from that standpoint. That's a that's a, not a lot of people have the opportunity to, to take that kind of approach. Right. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, I feel very lucky in that not only were we afforded the opportunity, but also the fact that my spouse is, you know, was willing to support me and get me through those, those years. And to this, you know, last year was no, um, bumper crop either. So, um, 
<laughs> I think for any of us. So, um, you know, having that stability and that support at home makes this career, um, doable. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. So as somebody that's also done some solo traveling in an RV and spent 15 months, about the same amount of time as you, um, what kinds of things did you, did you find you loved about it? And what kinds of things did you find were surprising discomforts maybe is a good way to put it. So for me, um, now I want to preface this with, I've done car camping for years and years and traveling, you know, backpacking, um, you know, did three weeks backpacking Thailand. I'm used to working out of a very small, small amount of gear kind of thing. And so when I got the RV, I ended up with a 25 foot class C motorhome. Um, and I loved that one, I was having the opportunity to just basically go wherever I wanted to go and shoot whatever I wanted to shoot, you know, over 10 months. Um, and we got something that large because I also had my two dogs with me. So what I really found out that I loved was uh, having the dogs with me forced me to find kind of off the beaten path areas, more regional parks, more state parks, because the national parks aren't, um, pet friendly, you know? And so it wasn't just, Oh, let me head up to the Tetons and sit here for a couple of weeks and, you know, move around that way. Um, I also had to plan out a lot more detailed because that was my only mode of transportation. You don't want to be daily driving a 25 foot RV that gets less than 10 miles to the gallon. So, um, you know, it made me really get into the research part of things. So not only was I looking for pet friendly, but I was looking for things that, um, you know, the grocery store and the hiking trails and the trailheads and, you know, all that was within walking distance. So, um, it really pushed me to different areas that I might not have otherwise explored. Now, the downside is that it really was too much for me, too large. I just, I mean, it had a lot of creature comforts that I just felt like I shouldn't have when I'm out there in the field. <laughs> so, um, we recently actually sold it and I'm getting a small teardrop trailer, um, that will be great for pole binds. So I don't have to set up a tent all the time. Um, but that, uh, it doesn't have nearly the space that that RV had. So it'll be a lot easier for me to get around. Um, so I'll have that starting spring next year, if all goes well. So do you have an AC unit in it? No, but no. I really don't okay. need one. <laughs> Good, because I know the reason I asked is I've heard that they're extremely hard to come by right now. <laughs> so. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, no, this is a custom built um, um, uh, by a small company out of Santa Fe, New Mexico called Earth Traveler Teardrops. Mm -hmm. um, so it's got ventilation, it's got solar, everything like that, but it doesn't have an AC unit. So, um, and I'm perfectly okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, no biggie. I just, I know a couple of people that are, are waiting on RVs and that's actually what's holding, holding it up. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
But yeah, so what kind of places were some of your favorites? I know from from my own travels, there were just like you said, there were places that I probably would have never thought to visit if I hadn't been traveling like that, because I was either looking for something you know on the way to someplace else, or I was looking for yeah something that was dog friendly or something that that was just a little bit different. So I did find some some fun out of the way kind of you know hidden gems that that I'd love to go back and spend more time at. But So there were quite a few places in Nevada that I wish I could spend more time at. Um, Arizona is, and New Mexico are both areas that I could explore for years and years to come and still not hit everything that I want to see in either of those states. So, um, Really, I would say that Arizona is probably my number one for RVing um, is my number one. I mean, there's a reason that it's a hot spot for for uh, snowbirds to visit as well. Um, but especially like down by Oregon Pipe uh, Cactus National Monument right there on the border. Um, it was just kind of amazing. I was there when there was a government shutdown. And there was nobody there. I had the whole campground to myself. You self-paid and then that was it. Like, you know, they had some volunteers and uh, taking care of the restrooms. But other than that, and nobody was down there. And it was July and I was able to set up my hammock and photograph hummingbirds coming. Uh, I'm sorry, it was January. And I was able to set up my hammock and photograph hummingbirds coming to the blooming octilio. So, um, you know, it doesn't really get any easier than that to set up a hammock and photograph wildlife. So <laughs> if all my shoots were that easy, it would just be <laughs> a dream. So, um, but yeah, so places like that. Um, or there was a small RV campground just north of there on the edge of the reservation. And, um, they had hiking trails that led directly from the RV park out into the desert on the reservation that you were allowed to hike out. And, um, I found that place because I had done a good bit of research into places to stay. And those reviews mentioned that people were getting woken up at 3 a.m. by burrows braying. And I said, well, that sounds like a place I need to be. Um, because if they're braying at 3 a.m., that means they're around there. So um, I was able to go down there and photograph the wild burrows in the desert. Um, and again, having it to myself because the way you access the trails is you stay at the RV park and you hike out. Um, so it was, it was finding those little places that otherwise I would have never considered that were kind of real gems, real highlights of my RV life. Hey Lisa, I want to take a step back real quick. We kind of jumped right into your travel, <laughs> but how did you get started with photography? Oh, Starting with photography, well, that um, goes all the way back to when I was about knee-high with a point-and-shoot film camera and spending way too much allowance money developing film that never became anything <laughs> uh, down at the Eckerd's Drugs on the corner. So, 
I did a little bit of that myself. <laughs> Kept myself broke. For... Didn't have money for anything else. So, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. we've all been there. I know mine was the, the those little huts that you, you pulled up to, and I would ride my bike up to them and drop off a couple rolls of film. Yes. Yeah. So um, I've been interested. I've been exploring nature through the camera since I was kind of old enough to operate a camera and uh, go out and explore my backyard. Um, it's always been kind of the lens that I look through. And so that's why it's just kind of flourished from there. Um, originally, I was told I'd never make a career out of it uh, and that I should go and do something that would pay the bills a bit better. So um, I did the military, did the college, uh, and still ended up here. So, and I'm loving it. <laughs> well, the military, I'm sure I gave you a few benefits along the way too, and some good education, some, some other things that they provide too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of the reasons I'm so comfortable being out by myself, um, is the situational awareness and the training given um makes me a bit more confident of myself like why shouldn't i be here um you know i know how to handle myself that's so i'm as safe as i'm gonna be in the woods as i would be anywhere else you know so what kind of tips do you have for other women that would like to travel by themselves because i'm sure you get it i mean i like as i mentioned earlier i get it a lot where people ask me you know you're out here by yourself and you know what do you do and so do you have, you know, with, and I know you've given whole presentations around this, so, but you know, just a couple of quick pointers. So my biggest thing would be have confidence in yourself um, and just always be aware of your surroundings. You know, there's been times I've been out and I see people walking with headphones in when they're on trails and um, to, I, I could never do that. Um, I, even when I'm jogging in my own neighborhood, I have my music on my phone playing on my hip, but I don't have earphones in because I want to be able to hear what's going on around me. Um, and I think being a better naturalist also helps. And I say that because if you start learning how nature around you reacts to certain things, then that gives you your telltale signs. So, you know, I can be laying somewhere you know, just this past uh, July when I was watching burrowing owls and I would be laying there for hours at a time just watching them. But I never had to turn around to know when there were people coming up the trail because I knew what the owls would do in that situation. They were already comfortable with me. They weren't looking at me. So when they would go on alert, I knew it was because somebody was approaching from behind me. You know, things like that make me more comfortable in my surroundings because I have other eyes watching for me. So taking advantage of those situations just by increasing the knowledge that you have of the world around you, the natural world around you. Um, if if people are worried about, um, you know, things like bears or cougars or things, you know, understanding bird calls and the type of sounds that they make when there's predators in the area or how everything will get really quiet before a storm um, or that certain animals will move during the day that wouldn't normally if there's a big storm coming in. Um, just things like that uh, as a naturalist 
um, really kind of help give me the confidence to be out there by myself because then I'm able to read the land and read what's going on around me. Um, the other thing is carry bear spray. You don't have to just use it on bears. Exactly. <laughs> it goes 25 feet, makes a little bit big, bigger cloud than the, the self-defense little stream one that you right? get. Bear spray is a great tool. And, you know, at the end of the day, no equipment is worth your personal safety. Carry insurance on your gear. Don't be afraid to lose it. Um, and, you know, they always say walk quiet and carry a big stick. Well, you have a tripod, right? So <laughs> there's your big stick. A tripod yeah. <laughs> with a heavy camera on it. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of in a nutshell how I, you know, how I feel comfortable when I'm out and how I think um, others, you know, beyond just the usual, oh, take a self-defense class. Um, but I really think the more comfortable you, comfortable you are with your surroundings, the more comfortable you're going to be overall. So how do you do that? Learn about your surroundings. Excellent advice. And it not just from a defense standpoint or a situational awareness standpoint, but from an animal behavior standpoint, you know when those shots are coming up based on, you know, those telltale signs that you just talked about. Because birds go on alert. There's probably going to be a takeoff soon, uh, depending, you know, burrowing owls, if they're at the burrow with young ones, maybe not. But you can learn to see those signs and learn to know when the behavior is about to happen. And you don't have to be straining and looking through the camera all the time. You're just looking for those opportunities. So I think that it's, it's multifaceted to be, to do exactly what you just said. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, that's probably one of the number one tips I give for anybody who's wanting to be a better nature photographer is be a better naturalist. Um, and you know, it, it's not just for a safety perspective, but also for a photography perspective. Um, you know, it's like, we all know that fall is rut. Well, if you have somebody who's brand new and hears about rut, but doesn't do the research and they're out in June looking for rut and Yellowstone and it's not, you know, you have to know when certain things are occurring. Um, you have to know some of the behavioral aspects. Um, when I take people down to photograph wild horses, you know, I, a lot of times we go in the fall cause I love the fall colors, but I look for the bachelor bands. Why? Because boys will be boys when it comes to horses. And so the bachelor bands, regardless of time of year, will have a lot more horseplay. Um, and so you get more action shots than if you're, you know, following a family band during the fall where, yes, you have some of the, the spring babies as they're growing and they're up with their moms and you get some of those tender interactions. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're looking for action shots in fall, you want to find the bachelor bands that are doing mock battles. And that's where the dust is going to be flying. So understanding your subject, understanding the environment that they live in so that you're not, you know, looking for, you know, pica in the grasslands. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's it really comes down to being a better naturalist will net you better pictures and more safety when you're out in the field. 
And the cool thing is you can do a lot of that research, right, um, with all the internet access and the tools that are available to us. You can learn a, a lot about being a naturalist and those behaviors and the times of the year by doing a lot of research. But then the best way to do it, right, is just to get out in the field and experience it and enjoy it, which also gives you the chance to take photos and you know, experience that behavior. And I always refer to it like every time I'm in the field, I'm building that mental database and I'll experience some new behavior or some new thing. And, you know, that adds to the, to the knowledge base of being able to catch those moments and knowing when those things are happening and that. So anyways, yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm constantly being surprised when I'm out, you know, as much research as I put in before getting in the field. Um, you know, some sometimes it seems like I've been putting in months of research for one particular trip um, and I get out there and I'm still surprised by certain aspects of behavior. Um, but I then store it in my brain for next time I'm working with that particular species or in that environment. So um, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. You know, but there's nothing like hands on learning. Right, right. That's the funnest. That's the funnest kind. <laughs> it is absolutely. <laughs> and it's not even just the understanding what time of year to be out there or anything. It, it does really help you get better photos to be able to anticipate that action. You can be prepared to capture it when it does happen, rather than saying, "Oh, that that's why he was doing that or she was doing that." And then you, well, maybe maybe I'll get a chance to to see it again next year. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, everything from um, understanding what the Fleshman response is in certain mammals to, um, you know, what particular body postures will mean in birds or mammals, you know, it's kind of like with cranes, you know, they point right before takeoff. And if you're not looking for that point, I mean, they, the cranes make it so easy to take take off shots <laughs> because of this. I mean, it's like a wind vane, the, the amount that they point. But, and it you takes know, forever. It does. Sometimes I'm like, okay, you've been pointing here now for a while. Come on now. Just make up your mind. But, you know, they do this particular body posture where they literally will tell everybody around them, their flock, which way they're going and that they're about to take off. And then somebody, you know, I don't know which one's hired as ATC, but, you know, air traffic control finally gives them the nod and they take off. Um, And, you know, with that body posture, you know which one to be focusing on, even if you have a flock of, you know, 150 cranes in front of you. So, um, yeah, really understanding behavioral postures, behavioral... um, actions will help you get better images with wildlife. So do you, you said that one of the things that you wanted to do is build up your portfolio. Now that can be for a lot of reasons. Did you want to build the portfolio to have some stock images to sell images, or did you build that so that you could have images to advertise for workshops and things like that? So for me, it was more images that I wanted to one for workshops, um, but also just to build a bit more breadth to my portfolio at the level that I wanted. Um, you know, I had been doing it part time um, for several years beforehand, um, ever since I got out of the military in 2013, and I kind of started really kind of taking it seriously. Um, you know, in those first early years, you know, you're also just learning when you, you know, I can have a camera in my hand since I was, you know, five, 
but I wasn't necessarily always taking it seriously because I was always told it's not going to be your job. So when I did finally, you know, come around to the thinking of, oh, well, at least I can do this part time. Then I wanted to really get into the craft, really build my skills. And so that takes a bit of time. So by the time this opportunity came about that I was basically gifted 10 months of unthrottled photography time, um, I really wanted to build a healthy portfolio that showcased what I could do, my style of photography, which at that point I had started to narrow down um, and showcase those skills that I had been working on over the last several years, Um, as well as, you know, so far as like when I was in Arizona photographing the Salt River horses, I knew that was going to be something I would offer as a photo adventure, um, you know, later on down the road, which is what I do now. So, um, it was, it was kind of the double, double reason, dual reason, but I don't do any stock photography. Well, your photos are amazing. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm, I've been looking through your website and and cheating a little bit here. And I mean, it's, you, you have a very diverse portfolio. Um, and I think you've accomplished what you were trying to set out to do. And I love, you know, some of the abstracts that you, I love how you've, um, combined the abstract impressionism with the wildlife. There's some really, really neat work there so yeah that's awesome if you if you guys are listening you really need to go out and check out her website alice bender a bender photography.com it's it's really impressive so and your instagram account too because it's like i keep going back to i've mentioned to you in a couple emails is that pronghorn photo is just unbelievable this high key where almost all you see are the and the pronghorn has such um, I don't want to say bulbous, but they have such round eyes, very large eyes because of the nature. Again, that's their behavior. That's their their survival is to have large eyes, to have good peripheral vision. And um, you have this photo where it's just all you see is eyes and it's it's so cool looking. Well, thank you very much. It just kind of captures exactly what what those animals are, are about. So with so with that one. um one of my main, one of the main species I was photo, I, I was focusing on this June when I was up in Tetons and Yellowstone were the pronghorns. Um, I'd only had a handful of images I was happy with, so I wanted to focus on them. Um, and actually, that was taken on my last day on my drive back. I left Tetons that morning, and I was driving back to Texas. And I happened to come across this lone female um, near the roadside in an area that there was no traffic. I could pull off safely. Um, And I swear, I don't think she'd ever really seen a human on two legs before the way she reacted um, because she kind of pranced off a few, you know, uh, a few yards and then just came right back to me. And um, it was midday, mid-morning, you know, probably 10.30, 11.30, somewhere in there. And the light was just harsh, um, but I couldn't just let the opportunity pass me by. And so I decided I really wanted to bring about 
um, those details within their features because I feel like their faces are so delicate and yet we don't get to really see it because they're so angular that the light often hits them harshly. And so by exposing for those eyes, exposing for the shadows um, on her face instead of, uh, quote, correctly exposing for the scene, um, I was able to bring out those details. And yeah, I just, you know, I just love to sometimes get a bit creative with it um, and take that that view, depending on what I'm trying to actually capture about the animal. Right, right. You know what? You don't get those kind of shots, though, without being intentional. You know what I mean? Um, especially your impressionism and that. And that photo is a great example and that story. I mean, I love the way that you're thinking outside the box in the moment, you know, and trying to say, how can I make the most of this opportunity? I can't let the opportunity go by. How do I make the most of this opportunity? That, that's a great story. I love it. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about having fun out there. Um, a lot of my abstract work, um, the impressionistic work comes from, it started out that I would get relatively um, bored waiting for things to happen. And so I just start looking around, seeing what there was going on and, um, and start photographing, you know, whether it's the abstracts or playing with intentional camera movement to create the impressionistic type, um, images, um, between just kind of random boredom spells and fall foliage really troubles me trying to photograph that traditionally. I get very frustrated. It always looks too cluttered for me. So when I started playing with intentional camera movement with that particular subject, to me, those images connected with me more because it brings in the fall colors. It brings in a bit of the detail, but it really kind of hones that idea that you're surrounded by a swath of color rather than having to deal with all these micro details within the forest. Um, so that's kind of how a lot of the creativity comes about with me is just looking for something different, being a little bit bored and willing to play. So. <laughs> yeah, and you do have quite a few of those types of things on here where it's either, you know, like real detailed shots of some of these, um, I guess they're, they're harbor seals, um, you know, or, you know, like there's one here that's really cool with the, just the nose and the whiskers. And it's, and it is, it's looking at, at some of those things that, you know, like you said, if, you know, part of it might come out of, out of boredom, but it's also seeing beyond what the typical image is. Um, you know, if you do, and, and I know I'm like this, I think every, I probably, I'm assuming everybody's probably like this, is that before you go out someplace, you do a quick Instagram search or you do a quick web search and you say, all right, well, what kind of things are people capturing? And not that you want to recreate those images, but you want to find something that's not already in existence. So it's kind of thinking of those things. And as I go through your, your, your page, it's, you know, there's a lot of shallow depth of field. There's a lot of, um, you know, just really focusing on particular aspects of an animal and letting everything else kind of blur out. And, and yes, it is an abstract, but it also is different. It's something that stands out from the crowd and, and still captures the, the, the story, especially with wildlife of, of what's unique about that animal. Um, the other thing I did want to mention was that, um, Maybe we, we, you should explain what intentional camera movement is for those that may not be familiar with that, that style is. 
Okay. So intentional camera movement is literally where when you're in the field exposing your frame, you move the camera so that the image comes out blurred on purpose um, in some form or fashion, depending on the direction and speed that you move the camera at. So um, it takes a little practice. You take a lot of shots when doing it to get one that you like. Um, and each one's individual. They, to me, that's kind of the really great part about them is even if somebody does intentional camera movement or slow shutter speed with a move, you know, an animal that's moving, they're like fingerprints. You know, everybody's got fingers, but you're the only one with those fingerprints. Um, so for me, it's, it really is a very nuanced and, and personal type of photography when, um, you know, it's not just another stag, you know, at Estes Park, at, um, Estes Park, but, uh, it's, it's something personal and something that you do for yourself and not everybody's going to like it. They don't, I'll tell you right now, they don't do well on Instagram if that's what you're after. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's something that I just kind of love doing because I love seeing the end result and how unique they can be. And I think it can tell a a unique story if something's hunting or if, you know, a baby's trying to catch up to its mom or, and if, you know, for those that are trying to capture stories of things, if they're trying to put a story together or a package of images together, you know, that could potentially be a a big piece of it. It could help communicate what's happening when, you know, as you're sitting out there observing them. That's also a really good technique in low light. You know, if if you find yourself in a situation where the, the light gets kind of crummy and or you're out there late, you know, I know, like like I said, this week I was camping and there were some some bull moose after dark. And I'm like, gosh, there's these guys are so big and they look so good. But the, it was just the light was horrible. And unfortunately, moose don't move very fast very often. Um, but but there are certain situations where you can tripod long exposure as the moose walks across. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's just, there's different things you can do with it. And that's, you know, in today's world of like 2 billion photos taken every day or something, it's, you know, it's just another way to try to be a little bit more unique, a little bit more individualistic. That's what I was going to say earlier when these guys were talking about the uh, pronghorn image. It's tough to make a pronghorn image stand out because they're, number one, there's a lot of them out there. They're fairly easy to photograph, even even in the wild areas outside of the parks. But they're really kind of a plain Jane megafauna species compared to the elk, moose, caribou, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but I, I think as I look through your Instagram page in particular, you know, I always look for a photographer's style. Uh, Jason, you know, stands out because of his use of light. And, uh, you know, Don has these big environmental shots. As I look through your page, I kind of note that your style is really to have no style at all. You, you're you kind of a master of many different styles. You do a lot of low-level photography where you're, you're putting something in front of the subject to kind of get that bokeh in front and behind. And it as you alluded to earlier, it separates subject and 
those are very unique shots. And again, you have to do something to make yourself stand out now because there are so many people out there with a, with a camera. And quite honestly, so many people capturing great images. So to make yourself stand out is a little bit more difficult. And I like the fact that you're, you're trying different things all the time. And, you know, it's not just one thing that you're going to see when you go to your page, not just one thing that you're going to see when you, uh, get out in the field with you, I'm sure teaching people to think in different ways, I think is, is the most important aspect of doing workshops. You can't just do the same shot for three or four days. You've got to teach people something different every day. Well, and I think that's really it. I think that it comes down a lot to taking advantage of the situation that's in front of me. Um, as much as I travel, as much as I move, I have to be able to adapt. And I don't like not coming home with images. So um, I do a lot of low level. I like to say I do a lot of laying down on the job. Uh, that's my preferred position is <laughs> just to, you know, just be stretched out. Um and, and comfortable on, on the ground. So um, I do a lot of the low level, a lot of the shallow depths of field. Um, but, you know, there's just something about working with the light that you have in the time that you're there. You know, if I waited for golden hour and great light for every shot, I would shoot. My portfolio would not even be half the size it is. So, um, and I don't stick around one place long enough to, uh, oftentimes let the weather come in and, and do its thing. And for me to see seasons change and things like that. Um, because if, if we actually are in San Antonio for a full three years, it'll be the longest we've lived in one place since 2009 when I joined the military. So over 10 years. And I haven't been in a single place for more than two and a half of those. So, um, you know, I have to kind of be able to adapt to what is given if I'm going to create images. Well, um, and all of us photograph wildlife and wildlife, they don't care if it's nice light out. So you no. might get the two biggest bulls, bull elk in the world fighting in midday sun. And you have to be prepared to figure out how to photograph that in whatever light the light presents itself because you don't see it very often usually it happens in the middle of the night it seems like but um <laughs> with that you know when you do travel you don't have that luxury either of waiting you know i was in japan last year right before everything went into lockdown and it was the warmest winter they'd had in over 60 years and I had gone up with, there with the idea to photograph red crown cranes in the snow. I was there for over two weeks waiting for snow. And at some point, I'm like, I'm in Japan. I have to go home at some point. Like, I can't just keep waiting for snow to fall. Um, so you have to do what you can to create the images and bring back something. And that That's in a itself, great point. That in itself, the climate change seems to really be having an impact on, on what we're photographing too. The, the, the typical seasons, the typical, um, 
environmental conditions don't seem to be typical anymore. So, so again, it's adapting. It's, you know, I don't, you know, I'd love to say that we can change it and put it back to the way it was, but I think it's just something that change changes in is inevitable, but um, it's, it is very much an adapt adaption that we adaptation that we need to, to take care of. And with that, it goes back to that naturalist point of view is keeping up with if you know what the typical behavior of an animal is and you're starting to see it change due to, you know, breeding's taking place earlier because it's warmer earlier or, you know, certain life stages aren't happening at the time that they're typically happening um, because of these changes. That's also something to consider documenting um, because that's only going to further the cause to help record how these changes are impacting the wildlife, the environment around us, um, and potentially help us do something about it. So speaking of no snow, I saw that you did have some uh, Japanese macaw, the snow monkeys. I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, is that on your wish list? Well, I actually had tickets for my son and I here a few years ago, and uh, I had some heart issues, and my doctor wouldn't didn't want me to travel, so I had to cancel that trip. So that's definitely on the list. But what I was going to ask, you know, you're there the same time of year, and that area is a little bit higher. Uh, was there actually snow? So they're actually in two separate areas. Where the they are. that's um, true. Yeah. Red crown cranes are, and say the fox, the sika deer, the stellar sea eagles, those are all up in Hokkaido, the furthest north um, island. And the snow monkeys, the Japanese macaques, are in the Nagano prefecture, which is actually just a couple hours um, by bullet train outside of Tokyo. Um, and uh, and so those are, they're a bit higher in elevation because they are up in the mountains, but it's not, it's not by much, if you will. Um, I mean, they, they are in the Japanese Alps, but um, they aren't, you know, they come down into the valleys during the winter, which is where these geothermic rivers flow. Um, and they have these onsens, these hot springs built for the monkeys to come into um, and, and regulate the, their body temperatures. So, and that's yeah, where that's, everybody shows up. Yeah. That's been on the list for a long time. I think since I was a kid and uh, first saw them on national geographic magazine, it was one of the few forms of entertainment we had on the ranch. So it, it's one of those things that really caught my eye. Well, if you do decide to go, please let me know because I, minus when borders are closed for pandemics, I go back every year. Um, and yeah. And I lived in Japan for two and a half years. I absolutely will do anything I can to get back there. So, yeah, Japan is definitely high, high, high on the list. So. So tell us about how people can find you as far as taking the tours. I know wild horses are very popular and you said that you have some 
some workshops with the wild horses. What else do you have workshops for? Yeah. So, um, I also do, so mine are more tours than they are workshops. I know that there's the distinction between the two, not that I'm ever going to turn down, you know, teaching people because that's just kind of what I do, but, um, we do focus more on the field work rather than any sort of classroom type time when we're out there. Um, but so I do photo adventures and so I have, um, a handful of them. One is upcoming in next month in Antelope Island in Utah, um, where we focus a lot on the wildlife and biodiversity of the island, the largest island there in the Great Salt Lake. Um, then I also have uh, Wild Monterey, which is focusing on the wildlife surrounding Monterey, California. Also, the wild horses that you mentioned, that's out of Phoenix. So that's based around the Salt River Wild Horse Bands um, down there. And I also have um, here in Texas during the winter and early spring, um, I do whooping crane tours and uh, shorebirds. So um those are all really fun. And then once borders reopen, I will be offering winter wildlife in Japan once again. So, um, but all of those and, and more can be found on my website, um, which will be in the show notes, um, as well. Um, and, uh, anybody can reach out to me with questions and if it's a place I've been before, I'm always willing to do private guide too. What kinds of things can people expect out of your tours? So so we go in and while we do have, you know, if we're photographing wild horses, that's our primary goal. But as you all have, uh, as we've discussed during this, this podcast, um, I'm a jack of all trades. So when it comes to it, I will be pointing out, you know, opportunities to work on um, intentional camera movement. We'll look at landscapes. We'll look at nature abstracts, you know, slowing down and, and really kind of taking in the details around us whenever there's, you know, quote unquote downtime. Um, so we really do take the opportunity to make the most of the time we have in the field, which is why, um, to me, that is the important part. So many people, you know, we can sit here, we can listen to podcasts, we can watch tutorials on YouTube and, and things like that. But it's really getting out in the field and practicing that craft. And so that's what I want um, these photo adventures to be is just total immersion in the field shooting as much as we can. So do you have any new ones that you're thinking of adding? So I'm actually scouting later this year up at Caddo Lake, which is in the northeastern corner of Texas um, for fall foliage for next year. Um, there's been some really great uh, images that have come out of Caddo Lake. You get these big old cypress trees with their foliage turning colors and the warmer water with the cool mornings, you get atmosphere and there's all sorts of bird life, alligators, um, you know, just kind of the general swamp, uh, environment. And so that would be another, you, you know, out of my, uh, the diversity, it would add to the diversity of my photo adventures. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, some of those swamps are. It's amazing how photogenic they are. You don't th- you don't think of them as being. You think of them as being kind of overgrown and just kind of messy, but they really are quite beautiful. They can be much like forests. They can be really quite difficult to photograph. Um, so when you do get ones like Caddo Lake that have these old growth, um, cypress swamps, I think it's a real opportunity to go in there and try and create something beautiful out of, out of that kind of jungle chaos. That's what I have coming up and and some of the stuff that I offer. And do you take people of what experience levels do you usually take out into the field? I mean, I will take pretty much if if you are comfortable using your camera, you don't have to be a professional, you don't have, you know, we can work on it in the field, but I'm not necessarily sitting down and explaining the very basics. We'll go over things like exposure and, you know, creative exposure, especially when we're working on things um you know, the more creative photography points. Um, but they are geared more towards that, um, beginner, advanced beginner on up. Good to know. Well, it's been great to visit with you, Elise. And I think, uh, I guess one of the things that we haven't touched on and we probably should is how did you become involved with Nampa? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, and in all honesty, it's been several years, so I'm. It's kind of fuzzy as to exactly. I think I had heard about Nampa floating around, and when I started getting serious about my nature of photography, um, I decided that was the time. If I was going to belong to an organization in this career, I didn't think I could do any better than joining the North American Nature Photographers Association. Um, so, I mean, um, it was it was right there in the name what I should do if I wanted to um, pursue this as a career path. Um, and it's just been amazing. I went to the last summit that was held in person um, when it was in Vegas. Um, and I've, I'm one of the, IG, the Instagram... Um, volunteer curators, and I've been able to give webinars um, for Nampa, and it's just been absolutely amazing. Um, the connections I've made, the people I've met, um, I I just love it. So I I wish they just had like a lifetime member pass so I could just pay once be done. <laughs> <laughs> Get a jacket, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So. Um, but yeah, so I've been, um, it, it just kind of goes back to that. You know, if, if you're going to get into a career, if you're going to get into a hobby and take something seriously, I think that you should surround yourself with the best people and why not go where the pros are. Very good. Well, thank you, Elise, for joining us today on the Nature Photographer Podcast. It's always fun chatting with you about the things you're doing. And I love hearing somebody, another woman's out there exploring and adventuring out on our own. Um, not that we're, we're anti-people, but <laughs> there is something about being out there in your own schedule and your own time that just is, is very, it's very um, 
self-fulfilling and freeing. Yeah, it is. So, so keep doing it and, you know, keep up with um, all the great workshops and the great photography you're doing. So uh, thank you for everybody for joining us today and definitely make sure you subscribe to the wild and exposed podcast so you can get future episodes and we will catch you the next time on the nature photographer podcast. <laughs>